Okay, well, first, thank you all for coming to the UA Campus Bookstore. I'm Rachel Epstein, the events coordinator. And um, I think many of you are going to know what I'm going to say. I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, for all bookstore events, we have free parking in the parking lot in front of the bookstore, the parking lot behind Rasmussen Hall, and the parking lot next to the Wells Fargo Sports Center. So you do not have to pay for parking. If you get a ticket by mistake, just come by, see me, or call me, and I'll take care of it. We have some light refreshments on the table. The bookstore closes at 7 o'clock. You must be out of the front door by 7. Okay, so please keep that in mind. Um, there'll be time for a Q&A discussion after the presentation. So now I'd like to welcome um, Dr. Rachel Ball in our history department, who will um, um, say a few words about herself and present our guest speaker. Uh, this event is being recorded and will be on iTunes in the UA Campus Bookstore a collection called History, Thought, and Community. And you can also find it in the iTunes store if you search our guest speaker's name. So thank you all for coming. Okay. Thank you, Rachel. Um, and thank you, Rachel, for so graciously hosting this event. Uh, so this is the kickoff of our fifth annual Phi Alpha Theta Alaska State History Conference. And uh, just before I introduce our speaker, I'd like to also invite you uh, to our opening reception, which will be in the student union den uh, immediately following Dr. Plyley's lecture today. So if you haven't had enough uh, sex surveillance, the FBI, um, or history, we invite you to come and eat shrimp and crostini and uh, have some lemonade uh, in the student union den with us. So I'm delighted today to welcome uh, this year's conference's keynote speaker, uh, Dr. Jessica Plyley, who is an associate professor of history at Texas State University in San Marcos. Uh, Jessica has a PhD from The Ohio State University, and she is the author of Policing Sexuality, The Man Act and the Making of the FBI, which came out with Harvard University Press in 2014, and there are some copies of her book over on the table there. She might sign one for you if you purchase one today. She also is the co-editor of Global Anti-Vice Activism that came out with Cambridge in 2016. Dr. Plyley is the co-director of Yale's working group on modern-day slavery and trafficking at the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition. She's also now the book, the book review editor for the Journal of Women's History. Dr. Plyley is a Fulbright specialist and serves on the advisory board of the UK Arts and Humanities Research Council funded project Trafficking, Smuggling, and Illicit Migration Engendered and Historical Perspective, circa 1870 to 2000. Uh, she's also continuing her research and working on a longer deray history of anti-trafficking in the late 19th and early 20th, and 20th centuries. So welcome, Jessica, and thank you very much for being our keynote speaker. Take it away. And, uh, no. <laughs> uh, well, thank you both to Rachel and Rachel for, um, for inviting me to come here. Um, so as many of you may be aware, in the last 15 years, uh, sex trafficking has emerged as one of the leading 
leading global and human rights issues. The fight against sex trafficking has dominated discussions in the United Nations, the International Labor Office, the European Union, and the halls of the U.S. Congress. Joining the growing consensus are a wide variety of non-governmental organizations representing wide swaths of civil society, including corporate leaders um, and different, um, different entities. Sensational news accounts and documentary films have contributed to the outcry against trafficking. Indeed, growing awareness of the problem of sex trafficking has generated a palpable sense of uh, urgency. Yet this is not the first time that sex trafficking has emerged on the global agenda. The issue first appeared as an international concern in the 1880s, and by 1904, numerous nations had signed the first international agreement to pledge um, nations to fighting against sex trafficking, and it was followed up by the 1910, 1921, and 1933 international conventions. So numerous, numerous countries passed laws to fight sex trafficking, or white slavery, as it was termed in the day. Yet today, most anti-trafficking activists remain ignorant of this longer history of anti-trafficking activism, anti-trafficking international governance, and anti-trafficking lawmaking. So my book, Policing Sexuality, explores the way that the United States enforced its federal anti-trafficking law, the Mann Act. So what the Mann Act does is it, um, it's formally called the White Slave Traffic Act. It was passed in 1910, and it made it illegal to take a woman or a girl over state lines for the purposes of prostitution, debauchery, or any other immoral purpose. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to offer you a brief history of the commercialization of sex in the 19th century Atlantic world so as to situate the white slave hysteria um, in, its, uh, in the origins of the Mann Act in its proper historical context. Then I'm going to give you a closer examination of a few Mann Act cases so that you can see the type of analysis that I offer in the book. And then I'm going to conclude with a few thoughts and remarks about how the anti-white slavery movement of the early 20th century shaped immigration policy during that period. So in the, uh, several interrelated factors emerged in the 18th and 19th century so as to make prostitution appear more visible and more prevalent. The combination of the establishment of European empires, militarism, the Industrial Revolution, and the accompanying transportation revolution produced a world where large numbers of men were on the go. So what you have is from the 1860s to the 1900s is everybody is traveling everywhere. Well, not everybody, but many people are. And during the, that period, over 60 million migrants will leave Europe for the Americas. But more than just global migration streams, we have people moving from country to city and from city to city. So the Irish of Dublin relocate to London. And about half of the Italians that leave Italy actually go to other European cities. What this produced was large populations of men, uh, laborers and soldiers, that were concentrated in distinct places, forming a reliable pool of customers for sex workers, who quickly started to move to where the men were. Take the Gold Rush, uh, take Gold Rush San Francisco, for example. In 1849, miners migrated from all over the world uh, with 40,000 immigrants arriving by ship alone. Now, as you can see on the slide, San Francisco had a very, very skewed male-to-female sex ratio. And historians have often assumed that the many women uh, in San Francisco that were counted in 1852, that most of them were probably sex workers. However, it's hard to know that for sure because the police records were destroyed in the fire after the 1906 earthquake. But anecdotally, San Francisco was just as well known for its sex workers as it was for its gold rush boom. And it wasn't just frontier cities that hosted a growing population of sex workers during the 19th century. During the 1840s, various observers claimed that New York City had between 10,000 and 50,000 sex workers who lived in the city's brothels, sold their wares on the streets, and solicited customers in the city's many theaters, cafes, saloons, and also spread venereal disease from unsuspecting clients to innocent wives. Historian Timothy Guilfoyle 
estimates that between 5 and 10% of all of the women in New York City between the ages of 15 and 30 years old engaged in prostitution at one point or another. Women's limited economic opportunities and their very low wages made prostitution an important survival strategy for those who were caught in the vicissitudes of 19th century life. By the 1890s, the rising visibility of prostitution prompted a response from people who feared that prostitution threatened society by undermining families, exploiting women, and spreading licentiousness. Like the anti-trafficking movement of today, anti-prostitution politics of the 19th century brought together strange allies, all of whom had their own interpretation as to the causes of prostitutions and the appropriate solutions to fight it. Women's rights activists, Christian purity activists, and public health officials all agreed that prostitution and international sex trafficking posed a danger to public health and social stability. And all of them worked towards a legal revolution to make prostitution and irregular sex illegal. Most importantly, all of them seized on the issue of white slavery to publicize their reforms and to agitate for change. But, before I ramble too far, what we need is a working definition of what white slavery means. Now, activists in Europe and the United States grew concerned that young white women were being taken through force, through deceit, through coercion, and being taken from their homes and placed into brothels where they would then become sex slaves. This phenomenon was called white slavery at the time, and activists argued that this was a form of slavery that was either as bad or worse than chattel black slavery. Some activists believe that all prostitutes were uh, white slaves because it was inconceivable that a woman would willingly sell sex, and thus in the, their minds, the term white slavery was, uh, was just another word for prostitute. Others argued that white slavery only applied to women or girls who had been tricked, who had been lured, who had been coerced, drugged, or otherwise forced into the brothel. And for them, she was invariably young, white, and previously chaste. For these activists, the obliteration of her consent is how they separated out the white slave that was deserving of rescue from the hardened, immoral prostitute who could be left to rot. Now, calls for national legislation uh, to address the white slavery cro uh, crisis emerged in 1909, after newspaper after newspaper published sensational accounts of forced prostitution, and magazines printed uh, best-selling exposés that argued that international vice syndicates were t uh, trafficking immigrant girls from Eastern Europe through London and into New York City or Chicago. Also the same year, the U.S. Immigration Commission declared that white slavery was indeed a threat to the United States. It was a threat to the moral and physical health of the country. So amid that growing outcry, Illinois Congressman James Mann introduced the White Slave Traffic Act in December of 1909 to protect what one congressman called was the blue-eyed girls of America. So during the floor debate over this law, a few prescient congressmen raised some questions about the language of the law, particularly that weird phrase, any other immoral purpose. So first of all, what constituted an immoral purpose? Alabama Congressman William Richardson asked, and I quote, Immoral purpose. There are a great many good and benevolent people in this world that think that horse racing is immoral, that chicken fighting is immoral. There are a great many people that believe that. How are you going to define an immoral purposes under this bill? They are vague and indefinite. There is nothing tangible in such a declaration, end quote. Second, the second question that came up was, did the U.S. Congress even have the authority, the constitutional authority, to pass what amounted to a morality bill? Now, or did that actually violate the policing powers that states held? So James Mann, the sponsor of the bill, argued, 
quote, the simplest test as to the constitutionality of the law is whether or not a state, in the exercise of its police power, could have prohibited the things at which the act is aimed. And he, he suggested that the extra-jurisdictional nature of sex trafficking meant that no single state could hope to fight it, that solutions must therefore be national and federal in scope. The third thing that was raised in the floor debates was, how could such a law actually be enforced? So William C. Adamson of Georgia proclaimed, and I quote, as a member of the federal government, I protest against the reckless injustice of piling up work here impossible for this government to perform, never intended for it to perform, and for which it was never called upon to perform, except uh, through ignorance or improper motive, end quote. Now, in spite of these types of questions, the law did sail through the House of Representatives and the Senate. After all, who wants to be on the opposite side of sex trafficking? Everyone always signs on because otherwise you don't want to see like you're being supported, uh, you're supporting prostitution. And so President Taft signed the, uh, the law um, into effect on June 25th, 1910. So at that point, it fell to the Young Bureau of Investigation, which, by the way, in 1935 is actually going to be renamed the FBI. So I'm just going to refer to it as the FBI throughout this entire talk. But it fell to the young FBI to figure out what exactly white slavery really meant, what did this law mean, uh, what did the law empower the agency to police, and what constituted any other immoral purpose. Now those citizens eagerly called on the FBI to offer a really expansive vision of that any other immoral purpose clause. Due to uncertainty about the law's constitutionality, the FBI initially maintained that the Mann Act was an anti-prostitution law. It developed its own separate department, it was called the White Slave Division, to enforce this new law. And Bureau Chief Stanley W. Finch was convinced that a very large number of men were engaged in, quote, the business of procuring women and girls for houses of ill fame, the number amounting to thousands in all parts of the country, that such numbers made it necessary to adopt a special system, end quote. So that's exactly what he did. Finch launched a special system where his FBI agents established local white slave officers in 310 cities in 26 states, mostly east of the Mississippi. Finch's goal was to set up a local representative of the FBI, a deputized volunteer in all towns that had a, st uh, that had a red light district and also uh, had a population larger than 5,000 people. The FBI tasked these local white slave officers with conducting a census of sex workers, which would compose a national registry of prostitutes who worked in brothels. And the purpose of the census was to ensure that these women were not sex slaves uh, being trafficked by third-party profiteer. So over the course of its 20-month existence, uh, the white slave division uh, actually entered into the registry the names of 31,689 individual women. So when the Mann Act was passed, and this is the important point here, the FBI actually only had 61 agents. But through this system of like establishing these local volunteers, by February of 1913, the Bureau had well over 300 representatives, and it was still growing. The White Slave Division's ability to monitor the mobility of 30,000 prostitutes represents an impressive, if not a chilling, achievement, and it is one of the largest examples of a registration system that we see in the history of registering prostitutes. But the events of 1917 are going to forever alter the landscape in which the Man Act, uh, the Man Act operated. During the war, as the war uh, dawned, Venereal disease was seen as a threat to military readiness. And the Selective Service Act, the Draft Act of 1917, outlawed prostitution near any military and later Navy installation. And it is this that will lead to the closing of over 120 red light districts throughout America during the war. 
Essentially, the era of the legal public brothel had come to a close in 1917. The second event of 1917 was that the Supreme Court finally decided the scope of that vexing phrase, any other immoral purpose. Essentially, there had been a case that had emerged in California in 1913 where two wealthy, seemingly respectable men were caught running away from their wives um, and running away from an unraveling scandal. Essentially, they were having an adulterous relationship with two teenage girls who were also from really well-connected families, and they were faced with the possibility of arrest in California for having seduced the girls. Oh, I can get there. Yeah, okay. I know where I'm at. We'll just skip all these pretty good slides. <laughs> Okay, so they're running away from the scandal. They're going to get arrested because uh, they've seduced these teenage girls and their wives and their wives' families are very, very angry and this is in violation of California's seduction law. So they flee California and they take the girls to uh, Nevada where they're promising to get quick divorces and then marry the girls and that's how they talk the girls into this. Um, but in, while they're in Nevada, they are arrested for having violated the White Slave Traffic Act, especially that it, uh, any other immoral purpose clause. There was, what makes this case so significant is that both of these men were very well politically connected, both to local um, California politicians, but also to national politicians. And the fact that there was no commercial element to the case. There was no prostitution at all. Rather, this was a case of what was called at the time a pleasure escapade. Yet the judge in the case was so disgusted by the men's sexual bravado uh, that he found them both guilty of violating the any other immoral purpose section of the Mann Act. And one of the men, Maury Diggs, uh, told newspaper reporters, quote, if I'm a white slaver, 90% of the men living are as guilty as I am, end quote. So immediately the men appealed the decision. And by 1917, the Supreme Court was prepared to offer its judgment as to the scope of the law. It decided that any other immoral purpose truly meant any other immoral purpose, meaning that prostitution need not be the only thing that the law covered, but that the FBI could use the law to police a wide variety of uh, types of interstate immorality. So what you have here in 1917 is on the one hand, visible public prostitution has been obliterated by the war. And after the war, prostitution moves into clandestine spaces, seedy hotels, uh, call houses, secret call houses, the street, places like that. Yet on the other hand, the Supreme Court has empowered the FBI to police a much wider variety of sexual activities, essentially satisfying the demands that citizens had been making for a broad reading of the law since it had passed in 1910. So presumably, interstate cases of interracial sex, bigamy, adultery, fornication, rape, and seduction all fell under the FBI's purview. Now, given the fact that marriage could legally cure cases of fornication, rape, and seduction, transforming these illicit activities into licit arrangements, and that cases of bigamy and adultery uh, constituted violations of marital unity, then marriage emerged as the primary institution that the FBI policed in the 1920s as investigations into marital discord quickly outpaced investigations into interstate prostitution in terms of special agents' caseloads. So no longer did the Bureau uh, ignore calls for help. Rather, during the 1920s, the FBI enthusiastically responded to citizens' invitations for investigations into their own familial catastrophes and marital calamities. 
Private individuals initiated most of these cases, between 50 to 70 percent of them, according to J. Edgar Hoover. And from 1921 to 1936, the FBI investigated around 47,500 Mann Act cases. So this is not an insignificant law. It is being investigated all the time. Yet during the same period of time, U.S. attorneys achieved only 6,335 convictions. In policing marriage, patriarchy, and respectable domesticity, convictions were not necessarily the FBI's goal. Rather, bringing order to disorderly homes was. So since Congress had passed the Mann Act, parents had sought to use the law to either control their daughters who were experimenting with new sexual mores, or to gain some type of retribution when men callously seduced and discarded their daughters. State-level seduction laws emerged out of the purity movement's campaigns to pass laws that regulated sexuality and protected vulnerable women. So by 1921, 37 states had adopted some sort of seduction legislation. These state laws all had the same basic features. Some sort of sexual contact had to have occurred. The young woman needed to have a, uh, be a previously chaste character. And the man must have promised marriage in the process of persuading or coercing the young woman into bed. Most of the laws allowed criminal prosecution to be avoided by a subsequent wedding between the victim and the defendant. But seduction laws essentially criminalized the fraudulent and cynical use of promises of marriage to engage in the benefits of marriage, i.e. sex, without actually committing to marriage. So the Mann Act operates as a federal seduction law. It provides parents and victims with a tool to use when a man had promised marriage and then had sex with a young woman and then left for another state. And like state-level seduction laws, Mann Act seduction cases privileged victims that had the same constellation of the following attributes, whiteness, youth, previous chastity, and respectable reputations. So let me give you an example. In 1927, the father of Ethel Kennedy complained to local authorities that Buster Frierson, a man that is repeatedly described as exceedingly good-looking, I kind of wish I had a picture of him, because um, everybody <laughs> talks about it, um, but, Buster Frierson had uh, viciously deceived and assaulted his daughter. He had infected her with venereal disease, he had abused her, he had stolen her money, he had abandoned her and left her pregnant. The couple had met in Hartsville, South Carolina in February 1926. They had courted for almost a year, speaking frequently of marriage. With her parents' consent and support, Buster and Ethel decided to leave home on December 4th, 1926, and head to Florence, South Carolina, where they hoped to get married the next day. Instead, Buster took her to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where he snatched all of the money from her purse. When she asked him when they were going to be married, he replied that the hour had grown far too late uh, for a wedding that day and that they would apply for a marriage certificate the next day. She replied that she could not spend the night in the same room with him without being married, and she started gathering her things to leave. According to Ethel, and I quote, he followed me upstairs, shut the door, and said, what kind of damn fool do you think that I am to bring you here and then let you go? He wouldn't let me out, holding there, me there by force. He made me undress and go to bed with him. That night, he forced me to have sexual intercourse with him." End quote. Ethel pleaded with Buster to legitimate the relationship via marriage, but over the course of the next couple of days, a pattern soon emerged. Uh, he would promise to go get the marriage certificate, but instead would go buy a bottle of whiskey, buy some tobacco, go carousing with some new friends. He, uh, he helped, at one point, he cultivates a new girlfriend, that type of thing. So after several weeks of this routine, Ethel decided that she had to get herself out. So she went and got a job, and she hoped that she could save up enough funds to pay for the train trip, uh, train trip back home. But this proved to be impossible because Buster stole everything that she earned. Eventually, Ethel's father arrived in Winston-Salem, 
had Buster arrested for a violation of the White Slave Traffic Act, um, and he took Ethel home and then sent her to her aunt in Chicago where she could both acquire an abortion and um, acquire treatment for the venereal disease that Buster had given her. Now, Ethel's story carefully articulated her blamelessness. And as she recounted her experience to the FBI agents, she probably emphasized the aspects of her tribulations that made her the most sympathetic. The fact that she was promised marriage, the fact that she was forced to work, the fact that she could not retain her wages, so forth and so on. All of this combined to make this an outrageous case, at least in the eyes of the FBI agents. Also, the fact that her family had a very solid, respectable reputation and that her father acted as her champion predisposed the FBI to be very sympathetic towards this case. And this case did strike the special agents in Chicago and Atlanta as an, an extremely aggravated case of seduction. And the judge agreed. He called it, quote, one of the most revolting and aggravated cases of this class that he had ever seen, end quote. So after Buster pleaded guilty, the judge sentenced him to serve four years in the Atlanta penitentiary, which is a federal penitentiary. Uh, he had no possibility of parole either. Buster represented the exact opposite ideal of male respectability or of the ideal of what a husband should be. He relied on his looks to get by, and when that did not work, he relied on deceit and force. Moreover, his deception extended beyond Ethel, but to the rest of her family who knew that the couple were courting. When Buster proposed marriage and Ethel's parents agreed, they too were among the injured parties. And in the fallout of the disastrous affair, their reputations were also imperiled. But more commonly, the Mann Act was used to police existent marriages. So for example, I'm going to give you another story. On April 3rd, 1929, 23-year-old 20, uh, Anna Grant dropped her two children off at her mother's house in Champaign, Illinois. And then she took off with her lover. He was 33-year-old Wesley Hatter. He himself was married. He was the father of five children between the ages of 3 and 12. So this illicit couple set up a home in Kansas City, posing it as man and wife, when local police arrested them in May at the request of the FBI. So the couple told the FBI that they had met at a dance, and according to Anna, she had lost her love of her husband. Whereas Wesley admitted to having a fight with his wife, that prompted him to leave her with only $4 to cover five children um, and then to run off with Anna. The U.S. attorney in the case quickly charged the couple with conspiracy to violate the Mann Act. The fact that both adulterers ignored their commitments to their, to their children was highlighted throughout the investigation, albeit in different engendered ways. The special agent investigated noted that, quote, the husband, Wesley, should be made to realize his responsibilities to be compelled to contribute to the support of his children, end quote. Meanwhile, Anna's husband, Zane Grant, told the Bureau that he would indeed take her back on account of the children. So in the end, Wesley, Her Her oh, sorry, Wesley Hatter pleaded, uh, pleaded guilty and was sentenced to two months in jail while Anna Grant's case was dismissed and she was returned to her husband. Now this case is extremely typical. There are thousands of them from the 1920s. And it's clear that the FBI had a deep interest in upholding an idealized domesticity and using the Mann Act to do so. Numerous historians like Linda Gordon, Barbara Nelson, Alice Kessler-Harris have shown that the U.S. state used its policies to uphold and sustain a normative uh, breadwinner husband-dependent wife model, thus creating a gendered welfare state. And more recently, Margot Kennedy has demonstrated the process of what she calls uh, the creation of the straight state, where policies, immigration policies, VA policies, and policies enacted in the courts upheld the normativity of heterosexuality. Clearly, the FBI's activities followed well-established precedences of upholding the patriarchal marriage. And in this case, the FBI had returned Anna to her husband while the judge sentenced Wesley to serve two months in jail. 
This is important because returning Anna Grant to her husband not only, first of all, makes uh, Anna's care labor of her children immediately available to him, which he was having trouble providing childcare to the kids, but it also what it does is it privatized her punishment within the confines of her marriage. Whereas in Wesley Hatter's punishment was necessarily public. Here we see starkly how the inequalities of men and women's statuses within a marriage require different types of state intervention. Allowing her husband to discipline Anna restored him to the proper place as head of household. It gave him the opportunity to reclaim his manhood, and it promoted his private right to discipline his family members. In other words, it recovered his dominance of Anna, which had been challenged by the fact that she had abandoned him. But Wesley's wife, as the junior partner in their marriage, could not sanction him. So the state stepped in to ensure his punishment by sentencing him to serve two months in jail. The reason why the Bureau pursued this case so actively was that by committing adultery, these people had abandoned their proper gendered parental roles, providing care labor for her children for Anna and financial support for his children for Wesley. And this case is typical of hundreds of Man Act cases involving adultery. But in writing about the Man Act, and especially during the 1920s, it's easy to frame the Man Act as a coerced piece of legislation that justified the invasive growth of federal powers. But the Mann Act also offered a valuable tool for prosecuting sexual assault. Rape victims very rarely gained legal redress for sexual crimes due to the patriarchal assumptions that permeated courtrooms about women's consent. This makes rape unique amongst violent crimes in that it has proved fiendishly difficult to prosecute. Now, because all illicit sex, both consensual and non-consensual, falls under the purview of the Mann Act, Mann Act cases um, became easier to prosecute than state-level rape cases. But the key is, is for a rape victim to gain a kind of um, retribution or justice under the Mann Act, they had to have parental support. It was an essential element for a successful Mann Act investigation in cases of rape. Indeed, many parents actually contacted the FBI to launch cases that featured elements of sexual coercion or sexual violence. So for example, in 1927, Arthur Hurt reported that Burley Leopard had taken Hearn's 14-year-old daughter, her name was Gaither, over the state South Carolina and Georgia border and assaulted her. So the case goes back to March 9, 1927, when Gaither's best friend, Sadie, uh, and two men, Berth, uh, Burley Leopard and Wade Middlebrook, showed up at her house to visit with her. They invited her to join, her, uh, join them on a day trip, and Gaither's father gave his permission for her to go with. But instead of just going on a drive out in the country, the party soon went to Atlanta, where the men rented two rooms at a very seedy hotel. Sadie and the men went into one room to drink whiskey, and Gaither went into the other room. Now, once she was in her room, Burley came in and lay down on her bed, and in the words of the investigating special agent who was recounting her testimony, quote, started hugging her, and she tried to push him away, but he finally overcame her and forced her to have sexual intercourse with him, end quote. The next morning, the party returned her to her home, and she immediately told her father what had happened. He took her to the doctor, who declared that, yes, he did find evidence of trauma, and also he, found, he revealed that she had been infected with gonorrhea. Incensed, her father immediately went to the police to file charges against Burley Leopard for rape. Now, Arthur Hearn pushed the local police to investigate, but they balked, and very quickly, local community pressure mounted on him just to drop the charges. So, in that case, he turned to the FBI for help. The families of the men tried to convince him to withdraw the charges, and they told the FBI special agent that the whole matter would be better if it was hushed up. 
The FBI agent and the U.S. attorney agreed with Arthur Hearn that absolutely a violation of the Mann Act had occurred, that at minimum, Burley Leopard had had sex with a 14-year-old girl, which regardless of whether or not it was consensual, certainly still um, violated the provisions of the law. A grand jury agreed, and after a return an indictment in July of 1927, both Wade Middlebrook and Burley uh, Leopard pleaded guilty, and the court fined each of them $400. So the Mann Act's uh, lesson burden of proof meant that it could offer the families of victims and law enforcement a legal alternative to difficult rape prosecutions under local laws. The assault on Gaither Hearn caused considerable controversy in the town of Greenville, South Carolina. And if this case had gone to trial under local laws, it probably would not have resulted in any convictions given the fact that the accused were white men who had allies who were willing to cast doubt on Gaither's sexual character and her innocence. Deploying the Mann Act bypassed this entire scenario by putting the case into a different jurisdiction and by strategically using the any other immoral purpose section of the law. But the ability to sidestep local laws, community doubt, and questions of consent could only go so far due to the fact that the federal judge in the case still lived in the community, and he was hesitant to, convict, uh, to sentence both uh, Wade Middlebrook and Burley Leopard to prison on the words of a 14-year-old girl. And so this is why he chose to impose the fine rather than a prison sentence. When investigating cases of sex, uh, female sexual exploitation, the Bureau still relied on its traditional understandings of family and paternal, paternalistic lines of authority within families. For the FBI, the support of the male heads of household were instrumental, or was instrumental, to determining whether the agency would investigate or not. The Bureau essentially investigated only when the right person invited it, a father, a husband, or a male local law enforcement authority. When the Bureau considered aggravated cases of sexual exploitation, it almost always conceived of prosecuting these crimes as defending the family and upholding men's rights to control the sexuality of their dependents, rather than upholding any idea of female sexual sovereignty. My investigation into the FBI's enforcement of the law reveals that the law was used to police the mobility of prostitutes, which was one of its intended purposes. But the Department of Justice also used the Mann Act to expand the presence of the FBI throughout the country and to provide support for patriarchal family systems. But, and here I want to transition into immigration policy because the Mann Act was also used in conjunction with U.S. immigration law. So I'm going to go back, I've been talking about the 1920s, I'm going to go back in time, back to 1909 for a moment. Um, by the time the, the stories of sexual slavery really hit American shores and you know, were being published frequently in 1907, 1908, and 1909, um, they joined discourses about an ever-increasing number of migrants who immigration officials claimed were flooding American shores in a deluge, bringing with them immoral practices that might endanger the United States. So Daniel Keefe, the head of the Immigration Bureau, declared in 1909, quote, the most alarming feature of this traffic from the Immigration Bureau's point of view um, consist of the vastly increasing number of alien prostitutes flooding the country, finding in the existing immigration laws with their present mean of enforcement only slight impediment to their passage back and forth, end quote. So for Keith, white slavery was less a problem of sex trafficking, of exploited, endangered innocence, um, but was rather a problem of an influx of foreign-born prostitutes who were coming into the country and bringing all of their bad ways with them. And reflecting the reality that the United States was an immigrant receiving country rather than an immigrant sending country in the U.S. context, concerns about international sex trafficking during the early 20th century reflected anxieties about the high levels of immigration and the quality of the migrants entering the country, as opposed to any anxieties about how to protect one's own nationals who might become white slaves and be sent off to Rio de Janeiro or Buenos Aires or other things like that. 
So in these narratives, the traffickers are always framed as un-American, people who existed on the margins of true American citizenship, usually of non-white or immigrant stock. One overwrought but very typical example of the types of pamphlets published to raise awareness of the issue declared, and I quote, open prostitution, white slavery as it exists today in Chicago is almost entirely under foreign control. The author expands on this point, writing in a passage that's well worth quoting at length, and I quote, please remember as you read this that America is becoming more and more un-American every day. Each ship, each ship, each train westward or eastward bound is now daily dumping into our land thousands of scum and vice and criminal element of southern, of southeastern Europe, Asia, and the Orient. And remember, too, that a short five year of residence converts the filthiest criminals from Turkey, Arabia, Syria, Italy, or any place else where vice and brutality reign supreme into an American citizen with the right to vote into office, men who, who will and are sworn to protect and aid in every possible way the Jewish, Russian, French, or Chinese whoremaster as he rents a shanty and proceeds to fatten on the very lifeblood of the young girlhood of this and other lands. It's a little hyperbolic, but it's actually really quite typical of the time. Xenophobic proclamations such as this uh, constituted a common feature of the white slavery narratives in the U.S. And similarly, anti-white slavery bromides were infused with the racial logics of the Jim Crow segregation era. The campaigns against white slavery strengthened racial hierarchies by uh, emphasizing moral and sexual differences between Anglo-Saxons and native-born whites on the one hand and new European immigrants, Chinese, and African Americans on the other. These racial and xenophobic logics helped to structure the U.S.'s anti-trafficking policies and their implementation in the early 20th century, which ultimately sought to criminalize, federally criminalize, foreign prostitution while also controlling the sexuality of native-born white women and leaving the policing of non-white women who sold sex to local law enforcement. So immigration law emerged as one of the key sites for anti-trafficking legislation in the United States. So the Congress passed the first anti-trafficking law in 1875 to halt the trafficking of Chinese prostitutes to the U.S. as a part of a broader effort to limit Chinese migration into the Western United States. The 1875 Page Act prohibited, and I quote, the importation into the United States of women for the purposes of, other, uh, of prostitution. And then it goes on and does use that phrase, any other immoral purpose as well. This law set an important precedent that Congress uh, built upon. The 1903 Immigration Act excluded sex traffickers. The 1907 Immigration Act made the practice of prostitution within three years of entering the United States a deportable offense. Equating sex slavery with professional prostitution as it did, the Immigration Bureau sought to respond to the white slavery crisis by building a moral fence around the country. And it succeeded in doing so by lobbying Congress to pass the 1910 Immigration Act, which got rid of that nasty three-year uh, prohibition, which was really, really annoying because you had to prove that somebody, when they came in, as well as that they were practicing prostitution, and that, that tended to be um, a he said, she said kind of scenario. And then it was followed up uh, by the 1917 Immigration Act, which prohibits the practice of prostitution for all foreign-born women, regardless of whether or not they've been naturalized. So by 1917, U.S. immigration law discarded any debate about uh, innocent sex slaves and hardened prostitutes by taking steps to exclude all foreign-born women who sold sex and also all people who profited off of prostitution. Now, U.S. immigration uh, policy has two related po uh, processes. First of all, you have deportation for those who are already in the country illegally and exclusion for those who are trying to enter into the United States illegally. 
So from 1910 to 1930, uh, the Immigration Bureau deported 7,972 women and men connected to the sex trade, and it identified uh, 6,401 men and women as prostitutes or pimps and barred them from entering into the country. Yet, it's really difficult to prove that somebody is a prostitute or that they're going to sell sex or they have sold sex. Um, and it's also difficult to prove that somebody is a pimp and so forth and so on. And because of this, the Immigration Bureau usually intended to exclude women suspected of potentially selling sex under the uh, what's called likely to be a public charge. It's the LPC designation in the graph. And this is the uh, preferred way that the Immigration Bureau dealt with women who they suspected of being prostitutes. It had a much lower burden of proof and much higher exclusion numbers. So the Immigration Bureau uh, excluded 142,964 migrants under this designation between 1910 and 1930. So as Martha Gardner and others have, uh, have illustrated, heterosexual respectability uh, understood along class and racial lines became a key marker for admittance into the United States. You had to prove that you were morally uh, upright and respectable to even enter. And Man Act investigations that encountered foreign-born women uh, who sold sex always resulted in her deportation because the Man Act was conceived as the domestic prong of the U.S. anti-white slavery policy. The immigration laws protected the borders of the country, and the Mann Act was intended to cover the interiors. So let me offer a few thoughts to conclude. Um, by using an anti-prostitution law to police a wide variety of women, enforcement of the Mann Act reminds us that the history of the practice of prostitution and assumptions about prostitution were ultimately bound up with ideas about women's proper place in the home and larger community. This study attempts to bring those two strands together and put them into conversation. That a law designed to police prostitution and trafficking also policed a domesticity and respectability should not really come as a surprise given the centrality of women to both institutions, both the brothel and the home, and the embodiment of male sexual privileges in both spaces, the brothel and the home. Policing sexuality offers a social history of the FBI. It rewrites the uh, geography of 20th century sexuality studies, and it incorporates gendered respectability into the story of the growth of the American state. The White Slave Traffic Act had been passed by Congress to protect young white girls from the dangers posed to them from a variety of sources. The venal madam, the duplicitous pimp, the brothel, the city that housed the brothel, non-white men. Yet by looking at the enforcement of the law, we see that the statute had been primarily used to uphold domesticity and to quarantine vice conditions. Both of these goals were achieved by increasing the state's power to police appropriate sexuality and the bodies that deviated from uh, respectability. Every Man Act case is predicated on movement, boundary crossing. But at the heart of these investigations for the FBI stood the home. While in some scholars' eyes, voyeurism, sexual policing, and puritanical mores characterized Man Act investigations, these cases were also about defending domesticity and defending the family. Protecting homes, promoting proper familial relationships, convincing errant family members to return to their domestic roles, and punishing those that refused to do so formed the foundation of Man Act investigations. By examining how Man Act investigations upheld patriarchal privileges and defended domesticity, this project joins the many critiques that support the fictionality of the private. Or put another way, it reveals how private behavior became subjected to public policy. In Man Act investigations, the public and the private are indistinguishable from one another. And the book offers an intervention in modern US history that demonstrates the ties between uh, commercial sexuality and domestic heterosexuality, the expansion of state systems of community policing, and the centrality of gender to public policy. 
And by 1917, which is the key year, the United States had passed comprehensive laws to address the perceived crisis in sex trafficking. It shored up the moral borders of the country by constructing policies that paved the way for the deportation of foreign-born prostitutes, thousands of whom were deported over the years. And yet it had protected, and I put that in quotation marks, uh, Native women by passing a federal sex law that pleased women's non-marital sexuality, and sometimes their marital sexuality as well. These laws remained in effect, and they do remain in effect, by the way, um, and enforced from the early 20th century onward. Anti-trafficking activism of the early 20th century, on both the national and also the international level, erased women's capacity for consent. It imagined traffickers as dangerously dispossessed or racialized others or foreigners, and it led to policies that emphasized border control regimes in a moment when nation states were dramatically expanding their administrative capacities in the face of global mass migration. Thank you very much. Wait, just for the, the microphone? Oh, yes. Yeah. Would you like to use the microphone? Uh, yeah, okay. I'll, I'll repeat it. Okay, here we go. If you could use this, everyone could hear you. Thank you. Hi. You've mentioned that the percentage of cases that the FBI took on that were related to the Mann Act were relatively high. Yes. Has that continued into the modern day, or did that change? That's a good question. Okay. Um, yeah, during the 1920s and early 1930s, uh, the Mann Act cases constitute, depending on which office we're looking at, um, between uh, around 65% of the special agents' caseload. So it's very, very high during that period. Um, in the 30s, things change quite dramatically because there's a whole bunch of federal anti-crime laws that are passed in relation to the war on crime um, that give the FBI new things to do. Um, and so now they're investigating kidnapping, investigating national banking laws, things of that nature. Um, the Mann Act was thought by, let me think about what year it was, about 1933, 34, J. Edgar Hoover gets tired of it. And he thinks that it's a misallocation of special agents' um, attention. And so he no longer wants to take the seduction cases, the rape cases, and the marital cases. Um, and the only cases that they investigate in the late 30s tend to be what we would, or what I think of as actual sex trafficking cases. Um, usually related to organized crime syndicates. And so after that, unless there's a celebrity who's he wants to go after, because Janet Cooper liked to do that. Um, but pretty much once you, after you have the war, what you have is the Mann Act becomes discredited in the context of kind of the sexual liberalism of the 1950s and 1960s and onward. Um, and it's seen as a really old-fashioned law. It's seen as like this hanger-on and nobody, I mean, this is why the FBI actually uh, declassified all of the records that I use is that they were under pressure to make records available to the National Archives and they gave them all of these records because they thought who cares, you know, this is this is a dead letter law. Um, and that's the way it was up until around 1999 and 2000. Once you get the international anti-sex trafficking movement uh, really gathering steam, all of a sudden people realize that, oh my god, the Mann Act is still around. And so right now the Mann Act is going through its second renaissance. Um, it is being used weekly and to go after uh, essentially pimps who are going across state lines. Um, so yeah, it is now eagerly embraced by the FBI, um, very dramatically so, yeah. Oh, and I think I actually have a slide about that, because I... 
what you see here is that now U.S. anti-sex trafficking uh, policy now has a new third prong, which is uh, the TVPA. It's called the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. It was passed in 19, uh, I mean, in 2000, and it's thought uh, it was intended to provide uh, some sort of aid to uh, victims of international sex trafficking. But there are a huge host of problems with the law because to gain aid, you have to help the prosecutor. Uh, prosec- prosecutor's efforts, um, which makes people who have been trafficked incredibly um, vulnerable to retribution from the people who trafficked them. And the other problem with it is that if you've been a sex worker at any point 10 years prior to your uh, being brought to the United States, then you are excluded from the protections. So the TVPA is supposed to make available like TVs to allow victims to stay in the country, but um, and it allows 5,000 of these to be given out every year, but the highest number that's ever been given out is around 300. So it's it's a really problematic law in many, many ways. But these are the new, uh, this is kind of the new anti-trafficking regime in the U.S. Um, but then again, every single agency before the Trump administration, because I'm not quite sure what he's going to do about it, but every single agency in the U.S. government had its own trafficking office under the Obama administration. So including Department of Agriculture, Department of Justice, Department of State Department, every all of them. Um, Trump seems to embrace the anti-trafficking movement. His uh, daughter, Ivanka, has, has said that this is going to be her issue. Um, but under, if he follows the George W. Bush kind of model, it'll return to a very much an anti-prostitution kind of uh, policy rather than an anti-trafficking, labor trafficking policy, which is what it was in uh, Obama. Yeah. Any other questions? Thank you for coming once again. Um, my question is, uh, how did the FBI's involvement after the passing of the Mann Act affect conversations at local levels as well as um, you know, the broader levels uh, in the home and in the state around uh, sex trafficking and prostitution? That's a good question. Um, one of the questions I had is, how do people know to go to the FBI at all? Uh, but there were a whole bunch of movies that were made in 1913 and 1914 that feature uh, bureau agents as heroes who are rescuing the young. It's like the it's the 1913 version of the Taken movie, you know. That, that, you know the <laughs> and so, and these movies stay in circulation back then. After a movie was shown, like in New York City or in Chicago, usually for about seven years afterwards, it would hit a rural like vaudeville circuit, and so you. Could could still see these movies like in 1921 and 1922, and I suspect that that's how a lot of people learned that the, there was this law and this is the way to go about it. Um, but in terms of, you know, and the FBI agents were actually pretty, I mean, they had a lot of offices. They had well over 300 offices um, up until the 1930s, so they were in local communities. So I think that that's, uh, people knew to go there. Um, in terms of how it impacted people's conversations, I don't know because, you know, people don't write down their conversations, but you do see, like, I can't, um, F. Scott Fitzgerald, in one of his books, I can't recall the title, but mentions that, you know, one of his, like, one of the main characters, Lovers, is threatening a Man Act investigation. She's essentially, like, blackmailing him. And there is this whole narrative of the blackmail associated with the Man Act. So people seem to know about it. Um, yeah, you can always threaten. And I once did a radio show, and a woman called in, and she said that her parents had used the Man Act when she was about running. She was 15 years old and going to run away with her boyfriend, and that she was very thankful that they had. So that was interesting. Yeah. What's the statute of limitations? That's a great statute of limitations. No idea. 
Um, I honestly don't know that. I should look that. I imagine it's changed, but I don't know off the top of my head. And I know that they've changed the um, the sentencing requirements. So back in my period, the maximum you could be sentenced was five years and a thousand dollars. Now it's much much higher. So they they revised it also in 1973 to instead of being women and girls, it's now women and children, so as to deal with um, young men who might be exploited. You noted the uh, expansion of FBI offices, but not necessarily officers. So uh, to what extent is prosecution of the Mann Act or enforcement of the Mann Act um, the key idea being that uh, it is the way in which kind of the FBI becomes the FBI? So I wonder if you could talk about that a little. Yeah, certainly. That's, a, that's kind of one of my central arguments is that... Um, Historians of the FBI, when they look at the growth of the FBI, have always argued that it was the Red Scare of 1919 that leads to its expansion in terms of personnel, and uh, and also uh, it, it starts more aggressively pursuing like labor leaders and um, African American civil rights activists uh, during 1919. And so, one of the things that I want to do with this book is push against that narrative a little bit because I'm arguing that these these volunteers that I was talking about. Those volunteers, once the war happens, they do one of two things. They either enlist in the military or they actually become more permanent employees of the Department of Justice investigating the wide variety of World War I-related uh, problems. So sp- spies amongst German populations, you know, all of that type of stuff. And so, you know, I'm still arguing that 1917, 1918 is critical to the growth of the FBI, but what it does is it, like, legitimizes a body of volunteers that were already established because of the Mann Act. The problem I have, though, is that the White Slave Division had its own special offices in Baltimore. It wasn't based in Washington, D.C. And the registry that I mentioned that had over 31,000 women, um, those records were destroyed, much to my eternal frustration. Um, They were destroyed, I think, in 1919. I work with a sociologist in 1918, examined them, and so this is where I get a lot of my statistical data from, from his records. But um, all of the data relating to who the, the, the volunteers were was mostly destroyed um, in a, you know, that where it was in, held in a centralized way. Um, so I have found around 400 of these guys' names. And for the ones who aren't named John Smith, which a couple of them are, and that's really annoying, um, I've been able to track their educational background and their class background. They're almost all lawyers. And, and then I can track what they do before, during the war. And it's interesting that the White Slave Division itself was closed down in late 1914, but you still have local white slave officers being um, appointed in 1917. And so, and at one point, they, they're given this funny badge. I think when the, well, it's the badge that's on the book. If you see the badge, it says white slave officer. That's the, they're given that badge. And the guy, uh, this guy's badge, actually, um, what's his name, William Richardson, and he's, he's in Colorado. He's really annoyed by the badge because it says white slave officer. He just wants it to say Department of Justice. He's like, I don't care about white slavery. I'm here to investigate war-related crimes. But um, yeah, so that's that's where that's the argument that I'm making, or the intervention that I'm making. I'm also trying to 
to some degree, uh, tell a story of the FBI that doesn't focus so narrowly on J. Edgar Hoover. I can never quite get away from him. He looms large. Um, but, I'm, but I'm interested in, in kind of reframing the early years of the FBI. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes. So you mentioned a specific revision to the Mann Act. Uh, are there any other revisions that are super significant that you would mind telling us about? Let me think about that. One of the things that, you know, in terms of the contemporary anti-trafficking movement uh, or law enforcement uh, possibilities, I think it's important to be aware of, in my period, how many, 42 states passed state-level anti-white slavery laws. And so there was like an international convention, then there's the federal law, and then there's local uh, state-level laws. And then some cities also passed um, anti-trafficking provisions. And so these are intended to work together, right? Um, in the contemporary moment today, we see the same thing happening. So in uh, 2002, uh, it's Oregon and Texas passed the first anti-trafficking law on the state level, and since then all 50 states have followed suit. So what we are seeing at the moment is um, in some ways a redundant recriminalization of uh, sex trafficking um, that has really interesting implications when we think about how these laws are actually enforced because although you know I'm supportive of anti-trafficking efforts uh, broadly speaking um, oftentimes these policies how they're actually enforced uh, can be rather coercive and they end up you know have strange consequences I mean that's what the book really gets to it's that why marriage you know why not sex trafficking you know things like that and what I'm seeing right now is that most courts are preferring to use state-level laws rather than Mann Act laws. They're using the Mann Act when they can't get, uh, get a, uh, a prosecution in the state laws uh, or in the state courts. Um, but these state courts are, these state laws have criminalized a behavior that's already illegal. The distinction is, is that they have much higher sentences. And so what we have is that somebody who is a pimp, which was illegal, of course, 15 years ago or 20 years ago, is now being uh, called a trafficker and then um, being put to a much longer sentence, which in some ways I find troubling because uh, aware as I am about the growth of the carceral state and the way that race works in who um, is actually sentenced, what I'm seeing is black men are being uh, being labeled as traffickers. The other thing is, is that there, the TVPA is intended um, to provide assistance to victims. It's supposed to um, help prevent trafficking and then and protect trafficking victims. And it was intended to provide uh, lots of funds for victim services. Those funds never really uh, amount to much when you compare the amount of money that's being spent on law enforcement. And so what we have is victims, um, even victims of like really, really horrible circumstances are usually there's not a bed for them to be placed in. They're usually thrown into juvenile justice institutions. They're treated as if they're a criminal again and again and again. And um, I see the same thing in my period when I look at how uh, sex trafficking victims in the 1930s were treated. They're, they're locked up and they're treated as if, you know, as if they're just as complicit and they're held as material witnesses and they have no rights and things like that. I'm seeing the same thing happening again and I find it very, very troubling. So, yeah. Any other questions? Victim was uh, not white, but uh, non-white. Yes. Then was she or uh, was she still below this uh, white slave? Uh, 
That's a really, really important question. Um, it slightly depends. Uh, so one of the things that we see is the Man Act enforcement was slightly regional. Uh, so I have very few cases from like New York City or Chicago. It's almost always from smaller um, American cities. And uh, African-American women ultimately, fundamentally, are not uh, protected by the White Slave Traffic Act. And I have numerous examples of their families or themselves asking for investigations, going to the FBI and saying, help me out, and the FBI is like, nope, I'm not going to do it. Although I have one case that is my exception that proves the rule of a case where a young 14-year-old, no, she was 12, 12-year-old uh, girl was taken over state lines and brutally, brutally assaulted by a guy in her community. Um, her mother was a maid uh, for a very prominent white woman, and it's the white woman who insists on that the FBI investigate, and the FBI does. But in similar cases, when it's a, you know black family members, Absolutely not. Um, now, if you're in the West, uh, Western U.S., um, their Man Act investigations were absolutely used uh, um, uh, to pr protect, uh, and I use that you know, very loosely, um, Japanese and Chinese women. It was used as a way to fight uh, prostitution in those communities, but it often was accompanied by deportation. And so it had a very coercive element. Um, now, the other thing that's interesting about the Mann Act is it covers reservations. And so Native American families uh, would use it occasionally, and those cases are really inconsistent about how they're investigated. It depends on whether or not um, the local BIA, the uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs person, is going to support the case or not. Um, but yeah, overwhelmingly, like within my sample, I, have a, I use a sample of 1,000 cases. The vast majority of them are, are, um, are white. The other exception is Hawaii, because Hawaii during the time is, of course, very, very multiracial, but it's also a territory, and this law covers territories. It also covers the Panama Canal Zone and places like that, the Philippines. And so in those spaces, the law is being used as an anti-prostitution law, broadly speaking, and covering all types of different people. Uh, in my period, absolutely not, because it doesn't fit the model. Um, and what's also interesting about my period is the, the conception of uh, prostitution is so deeply gendered in the FBI's eyes that they never consider that male prostitution exists, which of course it did exist, especially in places like Chicago and New York City. Um, but they, they do not read that as prostitution. They do not read those, even if they recognize that it exists, they don't read those people as victims um, in any meaningful way. Um, so they also, and this is a really important shift, in my period before World War II, when they encounter people involved in same-sex relationships, they note it, but they don't think of that as an immoral purpose. They don't, you know, they just sit there and say, this is kind of strange, but that's it. After World War II, the Man Act does start get to be uh, start to be used against uh, same-sex couples who are traveling together. And so, I have one woman who, in a case in 1939, they know that she's lesbian and they don't really care. But by 1945, they care a lot. So we see a really dramatic shift in how the U.S. state is conceiving or seeing uh, homosexuality during that period. Um, it's kind of, it's, it's fascinating. Also, I mean, I have many cases of abort people crossing the state lines to obtain abortions. They note it, but they do not think of it as an immoral purpose at all. Yeah. That's a good question. Anything else? Can I ask a question? Yeah. Um, I'm 
like the military? Because you mentioned the Philippines. Uh, uh, quite a bit, actually. Um, so the military, uh, most of the time, um, when the, during World War I, um, they are arresting most of the women, and they arrest um, the, the most conservative estimate of how many people they are arrested for prostitution or, pr or promiscuity, and by people, I mean women, during World War I is uh, 60,000 um, in federal courts, and most historians assume that there's probably 60 to 80,000 that are arrested and incarcerated in like what are essentially lock hospitals and juvenile justice institutions um, on state law level or for vagrancy and things like that. There is a profound crackdown on prostitution during the war. And so the Mann Act is used during those um, cases, but, but there's lots of other local laws that are being used and applied in the same way. And FBI agents, when they encounter um, you know, a prostitute at all, near a military installation, what they will do is they'll turn her over to local authorities because during the war their uh, duties expanded so dramatically that they don't want to invest, you know, they're going to leave that to local law enforcement. During World War II, we have a slightly different situation because the May Act is passed in 1941, and it is a federal anti-prostitution law that is uh, targeted military specifically to keep you know, our boys fight, you know, fit to fight and that type of thing. And it very much criminalizes prostitution anywhere near a military base, and it is another federal law. Um, and the FBI does investigate it, but usually, again, it tends to turn people over to local law enforcement. Uh, mostly, also, you have to remember the, the U.S. penitentiary system at the time wasn't all that big. So if you're arresting thousands and thousands of people, where are you going to put them? And this becomes a huge problem when the Mann Act is passed because there wasn't a place to put women. It was only male prisoners. And they're like, oh my God, what are we going to do with the women that we're arresting? Because there are brothel madams who are trafficking prostitutes. And so in the first two years, um, they compose like 40% of the people prosecuted. And so they end up designating like a women's... Um, kind of arm in Lansing, and they create kind of a women's prison, but there's still this notion of women aren't supposed to be in the federal penitentiary system. And so that, that poses a whole other set of problems. Yeah. And, and another side, uh, generally, how does this affect health care? Okay, so the healthcare, she asked uh, how this affected healthcare. We don't know. Because here's the problem we know the rates of venereal disease, uh, like anecdotally, like when you look, read um, the writings of doctors during the late 19th century, they're in a state of panic about how common uh, venereal diseases are. And at the time, uh, Venereal disease-related blindness was uh, was the leading cause of blindness for American children. So, um, but nobody, there was no way to do a systematic study up until World War One with that draft. All of a sudden, all of the American young men had to be examined, and what they found was really, really upsetting. So, at minimum, twenty percent of young men uh, were think about twenty percent of young men were uh, infected. In some communities, it was high as sixty-two percent. So this means that venereal disease is kind of part of everybody's life. And um, we know that it, it stays pretty heavy, I mean high, during the 1920s. It does not go down until uh, World War II. In 1943, we get the introduction of antibiotics to treat it. It drops dramatically, and then starts rising again because the antibiotics have limited effect. Um, but it's really not until after World War II that we have kind of a way to treat venereal disease that then we start seeing improved health. For the women, um, particularly, actually all of the women in my cases, many of them are, are infected with venereal disease, and I only see them in the moment when I encounter them, and I have no idea what happens to them 
in, in the long term, but um, I'd imagine that, that it impacted their reproductive potential and their livelihood and their life. You know, I mean, Ethel Kennedy, when she gets that job, she's having trouble keeping the hours because she's so sick. And, you know, she's constantly talking about how ill she is from gonorrhea. So, yeah, it, it probably had a profound impact. So, yeah. <clears throat> Anything else? Um, I'll, I'll sort of follow up on that question. Uh, were any of the women that uh, end up being essentially uh, targeted by these Man Act investigations uh, essentially designated for sterilization policies as degenerates? <laughs> um, maybe. Um, what I'm thinking, the federal government was not sterilizing them, um, but if they were handed over to local law enforcement, it's possible. Um, yeah, so I'm, so in some ways I'm not entirely sure. Um, it depends on where they serve about whether or not they're going to, uh, that's going to be their fate. But I've not seen it mentioned in any of the cases. And there, there's, there's, you know, I don't get a sense that they're using the man after the FBI at this point is really thinking biopolitically in that way of, you know, we, we need to make sure that they never reproduce and stuff like that. I, I don't see any evidence of that. Um, now, the nonprofit organizations I research, the civil society groups, the, especially the doctors, are all for that. They think that that's completely the way to solve the problem. Um, and they're broadly supportive of kind of eugenicist uh, movements. Mm -hmm. but, but yeah, I'm not seeing the FBI thinking along those lines um, in any way. Sometimes judges will make comments to that effect, but they're not ruling to do that. Yeah. Anything else? What else are you working on? Oh, God. Um, too much. <laughs> I'm a little distracted at the moment. Um, so I, I've been doing a lot of work um, with a group of historians who are launching a web project called Trafficking Past because, you know, I did the U.S. case, but there are people who study Argentina and Poland and Russia and England and, you know, Australia and everything. Um, and we're all tracking the same migration streams. And one of the challenges of, especially when we think about international migration, is it's difficult to track our individual people because it means that we have to jump from archive to archive, from different national archive to different national archive to different national archive. It's very labor-intensive. It's very expensive. And the people that we're writing about are fundamentally working class. They're not prominent people. So we don't even know if we're going to find them. Plus, if they're a sex worker, they change their names constantly. Um, so, you know, they're all like Kitty Smith, and, you know, and they change it again and again and again, and it's, it's uh, really hard to track. So what we're doing is we're pulling all the research so that we can figure out how to track these people. Um, and we're developing kind of a public resource so that people can see uh, these migration streams and think about how women are migrating for sex work in this, at the same time as they're migrating for domestic labor, like to be maids and servants, and kind of think about the interrelations between women's, uh, the possibilities of women's labor during this period. Um, so that's one project, and it's, it's uh, very exciting. Then the other project I'm working on is at Yale, I think uh, Ray mentioned it, that it's um, bringing together the leading scholars on modern day slavery. Uh, so some of you, if you know anything about modern day slavery, you might know the name Kevin Bales. He wrote Disposable People. He's a very prominent um, scholar in the field. He, uh, it's bringing together 
him with a whole bunch of his, he's very controversial, uh, bringing together the people who are very critical of him, and we're sitting there and considering what the state of the field is right now. Most of these people are sociologists, activists, and they're working with contemporary uh, trafficking and uh, labor, forced labor scenarios. And so trying to think about how to clean up supply chains um, to make sure that you know the, the shrimp that you can eat is, isn't a product of slave labor and things like that. Um, and then in terms of next book, the next book is looking at um, one of my slides, which you may or may not have seen, uh, had all of the international laws against trafficking, so from 1904 all the way to 2000. I'm interested in you know, many people have written about that early 1904 period, and I've written a bit about the 1920s period, but I'm interested in actually connecting the story all the way to the 2000 UN Palermo Protocol, which is the current international law uh, that addresses issues of trafficking. And so, you know, I'm going to tell the long story about what produces this international anti-trafficking um, movement, um, how are women involved in that activism? Um, what are the debates? Because as some of you may be aware, prostitution is the one of the number one fault lines in contemporary feminism to such a degree that there was a prostitution plank in the Women's March in D.C. that they took out because it's still so controversial and it splits feminists. And so I'm going to think through some of those issues. So, yeah, it should be fun. It'll take me a while, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anything else? All right. Thank you. Thank you.